You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today we're doing five great British horror films with writer-director Justin McConnell. Hello Justin. Hey Stuart, how are you doing? I'm all right, I'm all right. Now as I was saying there in the preamble, it's interesting getting getting you on the show as opposed to some of my, some of my uh, more local peers is that you're <laughs> Canadian. So I am. So from a we're Canadian... A little Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Former colony. Um, yeah. And uh, so that that in itself is interesting because obviously you're going to see British horror films in a way that culturally I can't see them. So we'll be fascinated. Mm-hmm. Me and the listener will be fascinated to learn a bit more about that from how you see the films. But before we go into it, um, you, you, you're, you're, this is your second time on the podcast. You were first on before Fright Fest ahead of um, your, your was it European premiere at Fright Fest. Yeah, that was a European premiere. Yeah, European premiere of Life Changes. So I'll put a link to the uh, podcast we did about that. But do you want to tell us a bit more about you, what you do in film and stuff, as well as make films? What else do you do? I do. I make films. Uh, I'm a programmer at Toronto After Dark Film Festival. I run my own film festival, Little Terrors. Um, I like. I probably made six features at this point, including two documentaries. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I can get into all this after we're done, all this stuff. Uh, I run a post-production company. I scout acquisitions for a couple of distributors here in Canada. And I, I don't know, the list could keep going. I I don't like to be bored and I wear a lot of different hats. And that's just, it's how I stay sane. I I, I think that might be a debatable point. But (laughs) in in my mind, it's how I stay sane. My experience is that you're quite sane, Justin. But, you know, other people might say different. I don't know. Um... So, Depends um, on the day. <laughs> so what's, what's happening in the, very near, in the very near future in terms of you then, with all that busyness? Well, Life Changer is pretty much done its festival run now. I'm, I'm going to Brazil after Con at the end of May to, uh, I think it'll probably be our last festival screening as far as I can tell. Um, but it's, it's been released in Malta. It's been sold to a lot of territories. It's coming out gradually around the world. It hits Netflix uh, in a bunch of territories at the end of March, or sorry, May. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of done now and I, that's after a year and a half or so basically living and breathing that film through festival tours and finishing post-production and making it and all that shit a couple of years of that finally moving on to new stuff uh we've just partnered with Brimfest on their launch slate of a bunch of features including deathgasm 2 and a bunch of other stuff so serena and whitney and i have a film called do you see what i see which is an expansion of a, a short that played fright fest a few years ago um that we're doing as a feature that's part of the Grimfest production slate wow. and then yeah and then we've got another um film called mark of Cain, which i'm a co-writer co-producer on and we're supposed to be making in australia 
at some point later this year, uh, we're just putting together the last of the finance. That's significantly more budget than I've ever worked with before. I'm not the director in that case. Uh, this guy, Sirhat Karate, is. Mm-hmm. But um, it's because it's a fully Australian production, and we, we you know, it's, it, it is what it is to put a high level of budget together. It's based on a book by an author named uh, Michael Prescott. Uh, his real name is Douglas Borton. It was originally published under that name. It's a book called Kane. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we've got two films that hopefully are going later this year um, or early next year. And uh, just keeping at it. Um, oh, and I'm in post on a documentary series, documentary film called Clapboard Jungle, Surviving the Independent Film Business. Oh, where really? I've been, <laughs> yeah, I've been shooting interviews since 2014. Uh, and turn the camera on myself and some other people's careers. And um, it's done like 130 interviews. You can look it up on IMDb with people from all over the business, uh, from Guillermo del Toro to, you know, agents and managers. And I've got the final or very final interviews, I guess, or some of the last interviews with like George Romero, Dick Miller, um, Larry Cohen, like I, I've been sort of just collecting gradually uh, and paying for it out of my own pocket. And now it's finally finishing post and uh, I'm teamed up with Kevin Burke who did 24 by 36 to do that. I feel like I'm plugging a lot before we get into this. No, that's cool. No, no, it's good. No, yeah. It's good. It's good to just talk about what you're yeah. up to before we do. I think, I think it's safe to say that uh, you're more than qualified to uh, cast your ruler over uh, British horror films. So, um, We'll jump in, but before we do, I'll just explain the rules to anyone that's coming to this for the for the first time, so they understand the format, and it's obviously a nice reminder for yourself. Um, we're going to talk about five British horror films. I'm going that, that, that Justin's pre-selected. Um, it's not about defining what is the greatest. I'm not using this show to form consensus, because that would just end up being sort of a repeat. I, I couldn't I, do it. I, I, there's no way. My list was 25 films, and then f- picking five was like pulling teeth. So, yeah. Exactly. As for, for, yeah. for a film fan, that's true. But I think in terms of whatever the, you know, the, the world of consensus likes to say, you know, there's a, there's a list you can, go on, you can go on, say, BFI or Empire, and there'll be, a, there'll, be a, there'll be a what you might call a, a kind of agreed list of what is the greatest British horror films. But liking a film is a subjective thing, so I want to know what, people, mm-hmm. what British horror films people find interesting. And, and then we talk about why they think they're interesting. So I can, through this podcast, shine a light on the canon of British horror films that exist out there. So we're going to do your five. They're going to be in mm-hmm. reverse date order, oldest to newest, um, and look at it and giving people a, a, um, a sense of what we're doing. We're going to straddle 1960 all the way to 2009 in five films. So uh, that's some journey. Um, we're <coughs> going to spend five minutes on each one, and every time we get to hearing... The Edgar Broughton Band sing out Demons Out. That means the five minutes are up, and in in Magnus Magnuson, uh, as sorry as Magnus Magnuson would do on, on Mastermind, I'll allow the guests to start where they finished, but uh, essentially we'll wrap up and move on to the next film. That sound works okay to you? Yeah, it works for me. Cool. All right then. Well, let's start at the beginning as we mean to go on. So your first film is 1960s, 1960. Peeping Tom, written by Leo Marx, directed by Michael Powell. Do you want to tell me about why you might choose this one on your list of five? Well, uh, I first saw it, I think, in the early 2000s, um, after I'd left my hometown and gone to university, uh, and it was available in their library. And I'd heard about it for a long time as one of those notorious, very controversial horror thriller type of films. And then I watched it. And first of all, I loved it on just a film, like a film level. It's so well shot and it's so ahead of its time in terms of like the pacing of the editing. And, uh, just, it's a very, very gorgeously shot film about a very, very disturbed and dark character. And I think it's pretty ahead of its time in that way too, because it's, it's almost like a docudrama approach to uh, somebody who knows, they, they even say it, they know they're crazy, but that almost makes it worse because somebody who says, oh, I know I'm crazy, they're justifying it to themselves that no, they just, they're, they're working through their own sort of demons through their art and then it, it almost comes back around to the point where they become a murderer because um, the, the lead character in it, uh, he, in a very sort of 
overt kind of way, uh, he had a really tragic upbringing and um, it sort of warped his perception on uh, on women and on people in his life sort of leaving him. He even said there's a line in it at one point where he sort of says something like uh, whatever he shoots, as in whatever he puts on camera, he always loses. So there's this sort of tragic undercurrent to it. <laughs> and <laughs> but it, in a lot of ways that happens because he kills them because uh, he has this uh, his camera. His, his tripod essentially has a removable piece and then it reveals a, a, a blade. So it, his, I think the creepiest thing about it to me um, and the reason that it stuck in my head in the same way that Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer would stick in my head or something like that is, is how voyeuristic it is when he kills someone. Like he puts the camera in their face and, and it's almost like he's recording from the moment of disbelief to the moment of pure terror as he gets closer to them with the blade and they're just sort of frozen in fear, which I'm sure a lot of people would be in the face of death. I mean, there's always that sort of, that sort of idea that, Oh no, if somebody walked toward me with a knife, I wouldn't freeze like a deer in headlights. I would run, I would kick them. I would do whatever. And I think uh, some of our instinct is, it is, it is the opposite way. It's almost like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. And then it's just abject terror. And the idea that this film from 1970 ahead of black Christmas, ahead of Halloween, ahead of a lot of other films has, has this voyeuristic POV camera when he's killing uh like that's how you see each murder in the film is through his lens you're you can't look away was really really unsettling to me and this is like as i'm starting film school as i'm you know after years of being a film fan and really trying to like break down you know what goes into making an effective film i started watching a lot of older films and peeping tom, peeping tom was one to me that stood out as shit this is different than almost everything else i've watched from this era uh, in a way that I, it still holds up today. You, you know, you can watch it with, I don't know if you could watch it with like a modern multiplex Bloomhouse audience and get like, they'd be like, well, that was, that was a thriller and that was boring. Mm. But I, I, I believe on a, like a, on a psychological level on a, uh, on a, just a level of how much it disturbed me when I watched it. And it took me, you know, 19 years to watch it again because I just rewatched it yesterday because oh, my, wow. my my DVD finally came in. I ordered it six weeks ago prepping for this podcast and it finally came in yesterday. Wowza. Rewatching it, rewatching it, I, I went, oh, I know the other reason it worked is because it was it was even though it's 1960 and the sets are way different. It was it was almost like an expose on, on uh, you know, the behind the scenes of filmmaking and things like that and how an artist and I do this myself their own inner demons they'll put into their art to get rid of them. But in this case, it's almost like the demons took over. And, and so the art became this murderous thing for him. What do you, what and, do you think is the, um, what do you think the power of in cinema where it puts you in the POV of the killer? Cause obviously he's not a hero. There's no redemptive arc to this movie, is there? Not really. I mean, he does kill himself at the end and it's almost like he's excited to die hmm. uh, because he, he falls for someone. It, it, t there's a there's a degree of love story there, too. And it's almost like uh, it's a twisted love story. And that's kind of what I did with Life Changer, too. It's it's the character is broken in the in the head. Uh, they're 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 not a sane person. So the uh, the redemptive arc that he has, it, it's not really there if you really think about it. But at, at the way it's presented. Uh, in a way, um, it yeah. There's there's this idea of it, he found someone who or something, some piece. Oh shit! Go on, go on, finish it, go on, go on. Okay, some piece. <laughs> five minutes is short. Good yeah. to know. Some some. He. It's almost like he found. It, it's not like he found love. It's almost like he found some something he could hold on to. That's an excuse for him to end all the damage he's causing. And it, it's, it, it's similar, I guess, similar to my film now that I think about it. Uh, it it's almost like the love in this case was a proxy for him to finally stop what he's doing. Mm. And, and you know, it's not redemption, but it's almost like admitting you've got a problem and then doing something about it. And in this case, he admits that he's killing people and he kills himself. Of course, the police are cl closing in and all of that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, fa it's fatalistic, obviously, and, and, and sort yeah. of almost like in a, in a way – the way the film starts, it, it, you could argue it's almost like Manifest Destiny, isn't it? It's like he can never really yeah. be happy if you're a if you're a multiple killer, then you're you're on the road to ruin, aren't you? Yeah, and and if you're if you're that um, if you're basically seeing through his perspective through the entire story, I, I think there's a little bit of wish fulfillment is the wrong word, uh, but it, it it almost allows you to. 
the same way as if you play like a first person shooter video game or something like mm. that. It, 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 there's a catharsis there. The, oh, this is how it might be. But I'm glad I'm not, I'm not like this sort of thing. Now, uh, moving, we're racing forward 24 years from Peeping Tom to 1984 for the Company of Wolves. Now, I was, I was a kid at the time when this came out. And um, as I remember it, it was, sort of, it was a big deal when it came out. Mm-hmm. But also, it was kind of it was it was a film that a lot of people love to hate, and and in and in and in this in the great tradition of things that people love to hate when they initially arrive, it's grown in its credibility over the years. You know, the longer it's been around, the more it gets seen as being a great a, a better work of art than it was when it first arrived on the scene. Um, well, when I sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and so 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 it's interesting now that it, it definitely has got its place in in mm-hmm. British film history and obviously therefore British horror films. I was just going to add as well that it was interesting you picking this film, you're the first to pick it, so I was kind of looking around to see what I might find and it was interesting seeing that uh, Angela Carter was, was the writer of it coming from a story of her then to write the screenplay with director Neil Jordan. But mm-hmm. um, this last year, as I could see on MDB, uh, a feature-length doc has come out about Angela Carter of Wolves and Women featuring the thoughts of like the likes of Margaret Atwood and Simon Rushdie. So clearly there was a, a, a literary mind that was coming to film and maybe that was something of what maybe people were reacting to when they saw the movie, who, who might not be used to some of the, I guess, the tropes that she would have brought to the kind of fantasy horror world. But yes. that, that's me, that's me summarising it as I remember it. But tell me, as a Canadian filmmaker and film lover, what, what, is, what is it about Company of Wolves that makes you pick that one in your five? Well, the funny thing is, is that I had no idea that it was hated when it came out mm. uh, at all. I had no exposure to that. Um, I think the thing, the reason I watched it, I watched it very young. I was probably, so I was born in 1981, so I was three when it came out. So I watched it on VHS, and the thing that drew me to it was the amazing poster art on the or the cover art on the VHS tape with the wolf coming out of the person's mouth. Essentially, mm. I was always, I was always like, what is that film? So when I eventually finally got to see it, um, I was I'm completely divorced from the original release. Uh, and I do think a lot of films, great films do get hated on their initial release because they're either ahead of their time or they're just so different to whatever everything else that's in the cinema or in the, yeah, in the yeah, cinema yeah. at the time. Exactly. I that, think that's what it was more than anything else. Yeah. Because it does have a very literary uh, approach to storytelling. In a way, the story is almost a turducken of a story in that it's a story wrapped in a dream framing device. And then within the dream, there's an anthology wrapped in that story. So it's not uh, – there is no direct line from start to finish with this story. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it has it has this almost dreamlike quality. And like a dream, um, it's, it's cohesive only on reflection and not necessarily uh, – in while watching it so i could see a lot of people being lost it's like okay why are you telling this story and now what's with the dinner table scene with everybody turning in the wolves it's i, I again it, it's told narratively so somebody's actually telling these stories yeah uh whether it be angela lansbury or whoever else but it, it, it's it's not like it's going it's about a, a girl who goes into the woods and then uh she, she's you know taken by you can't really summarize it in that way because of the dream logic of the film has to it um but it's gorgeously designed it's beautifully shot it it has this sort of again i keep going back to dreamlike it it has this um pro misty glowing look to it uh it's meant to to give, give you a reflection of something that half remembered almost um and the cast is really great uh, the werewolf transformations are some of the most unique I've ever seen put on film and as a kid disturbed the living fuck out of me mm. because um, the idea of you having to tear your own skin off to really, to let the wolf co- come out from inside was just so – it's such a visceral thing and the rest of the film isn't quite as visceral. And, and so when it does happen, it, it sort of is a gut punch. Mm. Um, but, but, it, but it is it, – it's a horror film but – in the it, through the way of a Grimm's fairy tale, through like like it gets really 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 dark, but it's um it's almost bittersweet by the end. And I don't. I was going to say to... the way you were talking about it, it, it kind of makes me think now. I never thought of it when you said before about it doesn't seem to make that doesn't seem to hang together when you watch it, and then after you think about it, you realize mm-hmm. where the joins are. I remember what yeah. 2015's Tale of Tales. Had a, has a similar quality, which obviously... Oh, that has, film's good. Yeah. yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It has that similar kind of mm-hmm. playfulness 
which which fantasy fantasy storytelling can have. Yeah, it plays with form, it plays with structure, and uh, I, you almost have to. And this is a, another reason a lot of audiences hate films like this in a lot of ways. It's <laughs> because any film you watch and then later on you really only get it because you have to sit down and actually think about it. And a lot of audiences, and I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize an experience of a film watcher here, but a lot of people walk out of the cinema and they're like, okay, let's get drinks. Instead of like, yeah, instead yeah, 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 yeah. Un- unpacking what they're, they've seen, and especially if it's something that it was uh, going over your head is, is, is something that happens with a lot of films that are impressionistic and, and uh, something you have to analyze to really like, like the movie is to me is like a metaphor for sexual awakening and coming of age and like coming into your own because by the end of it, and again, this, there's a spoiler, obviously worry, you got to worry about spoilers. So, um, to some degree, but the movie is 40 years old now. No, I, think, so... I, think, I think when we're doing a celebration of films, we can assume that people are tuning in to hear your thoughts. Okay. So please, Got please it. don't worry so, about um, So by the end of it, within the, within the dream itself, by the end of it, you realize that the, uh, because it, the whole thing is like a uh, red, Little Red Riding Hood, meta, like that's the structure of the film to mm-hmm. an extent, like a disturbing Little Red Riding Hood. The idea that Red Riding Hood herself is a wolf who has learned to become a human, and she's really happiest when she lets herself return as a wolf and run away with the big bad wolf, is this sort of uh, this fulfillment of the idea that the society she's in, the uh, this town, this this place she lives, is this repressed, overly religious um, thing holding her down, and then she's really only free when she's able to accept who she is. Um, it is a really, really powerful theme. Go on, finish. Go on, come. A really powerful theme. And then when we come back to the real world where she's having a dream and the wolf j- wolves jump through her walls and jump through her window, it's almost like uh, adulthood comes crashing in on her. And I uh, I don't know. I, there was just something very powerful about it when I first saw it, but I was very young, so I didn't really get it. And then I rewatched it a few times over the years, uh, and most recently about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago or however long ago. And, yeah, it holds up perfectly well. It's, it's, a, it's a very powerful, very unique uh, horror fantasy. No, no, and I think that's what this – I mean, look, I mean, it was funny you talk about that idea of let's go for a drink after you yeah. see a film. I mean, I, I, my, 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 when, I was a, when I was just a student – I remember going to the Louvre in Paris and not caring because obviously we were just killing time. We weren't really that bothered about what the tourist things we were doing. And walking past the Venus de Milo and said to my friend, oh, it's like a garden centre in here. You know, completely, <laughs> completely being the Philistine that I was and didn't hope to be when I was older. But, you know, you can't, sometimes you just, and I think sometimes you're not in the right place for stuff. There's many a film I've watched mm. where I've not been in the right frame of mind. And then I go back to it and watch it again, and it's like, whoa! This just this hits me in the gut, or this speaks to me, you know. And I think, and I think that's where I think the Company of Wolves. I think it was there was it was an extravagant. Maybe it went over budget, so it was getting that classic thing. You know what a film's momentum is? The bad news mm-hmm. about it before anyone's even seen it. Yep. And then because it's harder work than your average film to watch. It's like, oh, well, what? they're just they're just a folly. They've wasted their money, you know, that kind of thing. So Yeah, and you get you get from a film what you bring to a film in a lot of cases. And if you bring a lot of baggage, if you've been reading trade articles about how the film is, you know, uh, in trouble or, oh, this is going to be a big disaster or, well, you know, you're just not ready for it, then you're going to take away from it something that's maybe not what was intended. Indeed. Now, the uh, your next choice is a lot simpler for us to understand. This is, I'd, I, I, arguably, this is your... Your, your straight-up horror film on the list, uh, mm-hmm. 1987's Hellraiser, written and directed, obviously, by uh, Clive Barker, and began yes. and gave us the Cenobite revolution and the iconic mm-hmm. horror character of Pinhead. So tell me what Justin McConnell thought when he first saw and began to think, no, this is one of the best horror films I've seen come out of that Brit- British island. Mm-hmm. So Hellraiser is interesting because, uh, you know, as a horror fan growing up, I was on a the new classic monsters kick, I would put it, where, you know, your your Freddy's, your Jason's, your Chucky's, uh, the list goes on and on and on. But Pinhead and Hellraiser and that franchise, well, I say franchise, I'm really only talking about Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. Yes, I like, I, 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 li- I live with you on that one. I live with you on that yeah. one. I do like the other films, or not, some of the other films, as just like, they're good time wasters. But the first two films, the first one in particular, and the second one for expanding the lore and becoming even crazier, mm. um, I think what makes them stand out is... 
first of all, Clyde Barker's perspective on the story. Um, he he's a, a writer and a, who loves existential horror and um, puts like the entire concept that uh, you get pleasure out of pain and how far he went with the idea of that pain, the, the how the, the chains rip the bodies apart and the people getting skinned and, and all of that imagery. It's as close to putting hell on film that I think I've seen, uh, at least at the time, and maybe overall. Um, the the concept that there's things living outside of our world that are not necessarily evil, they're definitely not good, they just are. It's what they do, it's their purpose, and that there are doorways that you can sort of bring that world to you for whatever purpose, that being the lament configuration, the, the puzzle box, mm. that sort of thing. Um, it, it was just such a unique horror idea and was like nothing else that had come that i'd seen at that point it made see the villain in hellraiser the first one even the second it's not it's not pinhead pinhead is 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 uh he's like a day worker for hell i mean he does a job he fulfills his purpose he does it well he he takes pleasure from it but in the first film frank is the villain of course uh, yeah and, and julia is the villain of the second and the doctor obviously are the villain and it's almost like the real evil in the hellraiser films come from human desire and human uh the we're, the darkness in the human soul we're a problematic and, bunch of people aren't we yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> um and, but it's just it it's totally straight faced it it doesn't joke at all it it is just pure darkness and pure um like tension that movie uh, the first one in particular, uh, but this, I, w- I would almost fold the second one into it. it. You could watch those two films back to back and it feels like one three hour descent into hell. Mm. Uh, they're both very strong. It, um, and, but it's such a, it's fucking disturbing to the point where, um, I, even though it's fun and even though it's got like that big monster thing and, and there's creature stuff and all that sort of thing is and in both films, um, it, it plays with the the tone of horror so differently than any of those other sort of like new classic villains, the, the Chuckies and whatever else um, that it it's in a league of its own. And I don't know if that's a British sensibility. I don't know if, 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 because I'm not British, um, I don't, I don't know if it, it, it's just the tone is so deadly serious because he set out to make him and his team, and you know Bob. I King think that's definitely. I think that's definitely Clive Barker because. Yeah. I mean, because there's, there's, I think as well, there's a layer of obviously pitch tar black humor going on as well. Yeah, there um, is. <laughs> and um, and I think what's interesting from a, from a writing and a filmmaking point of view is that he pres- if if you try and take it apart, it feels like it's very complicated. But actually, mm-hmm. watching the film, he manages to through showing and very rarely telling manages to convey all the complexities of the world in enough detail for you to more than understand and interpret what's going on and feel yep. the dread and everything else that goes along with understanding what's happening. Yeah, I, but I, I love that sort of storytelling where the story itself is actually rather simple, but the bigger world, the implications of the story are massive. Mm. And you gradually unveil that as time goes on. And in the first one, you get a hint. In the second one, you actually go to hell and you sort of, maybe it shows too much, but by then you're on sort of this journey that's such a trip. You're like, okay, yeah, no, this this makes sense. Uh, I've, I've never seen anything on film that's sort of pictured like that. And not and not and again, not probably until another Clive Barker film, Nightbreed, where we see Midian and we see like <laughs> this. Ins- I, I don't know. There's just something about Barker's portrayal of um, the gray area of evil that I really, uh, I, it really affected me when I was younger and lived on in my mind. Well, look at that, you almost got in the rhythm of it there. You kind of brought your... I think I pretty much hit that. <laughs> <laughs> that was lovely. Um, yeah. Right then, now, for your fourth choice, um, it's interesting because we, we, we've, uh, the writer of this, Stephen Volk, has been on, done, he's done his five great British horror films, um, and we've also done... Um, we did, a, we did a show with him as well, and my mind's gone blank now as to what we talked about, which is really bad. Um, but we did do mm-hmm. five great films with Stephen. And, um, and I don't know if you know this, but, but what, you're about, what we're about to talk about earned the dubious honour of being the first TV programme cited by the British Medical Journal as having caused PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, <laughs> in children. I believe it. I fully believe it. 
We're talking about <laughs> 1992's Ghostwatch. Do you want to tell... I mean, and obviously this is a phenomenon that was kind of like people came in late, didn't see the opening mm-hmm. credits, and went, what the fuck's this? Um, and yeah. uh, so from you, how did you come across this movie? This so here's drama. the funny thing about Ghostwatch. I what? first watched it last year on Shudder. So I no am way late to this one. Like, way late. Fantastic. But, but I was able to watch it completely removed from the original airing and appreciating it with a modern mind that that has seen tons of metatextual horror and has been through, you know, endless found footage films and endless fake reality format sort of films mm. and looking at it in a historical perspective of what it must have been like when it first aired, playing it totally straight, using vanilla television personalities to, to do it. And it, it's, it's pretty much the war of the world's approach to storytelling, right? Like yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. um, like distancing myself from all that and trying to put myself into the mindset of what the audience must have been like was uh, was a really great exercise. But the film itself or the TV, TV special itself, even divorced from all that, even knowing it's fake uh, by by going through those sort of um, imagination games of like what must it have been like is still really unsettling. It's it's a, a very, very creepy watch. In the same way that um, I'll use uh, Julian Richards' film, The Last Horror Movie. Mm. So I saw that uh, on DVD from a Fangoria release. And the way that that film is framed is like, oh, if you actually hired it as a videotape from the video store, you know, maybe there's a serial killer about to kill me. Um, it's the same sort of idea where I had to distance myself from the from how it should have been presented or how it was presented and realize how effective it would have been had I actually been there at the time watching it in the live broadcast, not having any of the film history of, of metatextual storytelling in my head and going, what is this? And But also, I think one of the horror concepts that get to me the most is the idea of viewer participation, the idea that by watching something, you are now uh, in danger. So um, the concept that uh, the evil can transcend the signal and can transcend the fiction and can transcend that and you are opening yourself up to demonic possession. You are opening yourself up to some kind of an evil simply by sitting there and passively watching something is uh, is an existential horror concept that I always find fascinating and terrifying. I actually made a short film, uh, 2012, yeah, in 2012 called Eviction. It's out there on YouTube. Mm. And the idea is a priest who's been possessed by a demon, a very old demon who straps himself to a self-made Spanish Inquisition chair and then tries to exercise himself. And then in watching this, and I released it on YouTube um, without putting my name on it. I want, I, and I wanted to see how people were to re- react because there's no end credits or anything either. And and the idea is that as you're watching it, you realize as the viewer by watching this, you're spreading it, and you're now being possessed as well. It's it, the, this concept of um, simply simply fucking with the audience to the point where they actually get terrified on it on a purely like visceral base level of am I should I turn like the first time I watched the ring mm. or Ringu Ringu the original ring yeah. I've rented it on VHS long before anybody had like from a suspect video in Toronto long before anybody was talking about it and I watched it and I remember when they played the original Ringu the tape I actually turned my TV off and waited for the tape to end and started the movie again because I didn't want to actually watch the videotape I, I was it, I was I was that scared by it uh, because it was removed from any sort of context. Any, I just knew, oh, it's it, the guy at the video store is like, watch this. <laughs> it's like, okay, where'd you get this tape? <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so Ghost Watch to me, it, it, I really appreciate on what it did and realize like, how effective it was then. And, and then I'm able to think this is still really effective. It's really well put together. It's, it's really, uh, it, it's believable. Um, despite the fact that, you know, you, you, you can come to it with a very critical mind and go, well, obviously it's not real, but there, you, you could play a, a, like a, a sort of brain game and go, well, it would feel pretty real if it was, you know, 1992, I think it was 1992, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If it was 1992 and I'm watching a broadcast on ghosts, uh, all, with all these TV personalities that I used to just like being straight faced and serious, um, you know, and then everything goes off the rails. <laughs> you know, do you know? Do you know the telephone number at the end that it gives you? Yeah. If you that was real. And then when you <laughs> apparently when you rung it up, 
it then told you this isn't this program hasn't been real. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Which is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, as that's far great. as as far as an no, audience. <laughs> I really I really do appreciate. It. There's another um uh, uh fuck um inside number 9 last yeah, year. Yeah, 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 that was like did their own like a their own version of it. Yeah, and uh I love that too. Go on, finish it off. Yep. Um, I was just going to say, I should, I should. I've now remembered uh, the, I, the the film that I talked to Stephen Volk about was his him writing uh, the Awakening. Got my mind went ah. blank. My mind went blank when we started. But uh, no, <laughs> that's really fascinating, and it's great that that, that Ghostwork can be seen cold almost twenty odd mm-hmm. years later and still work as a, as a, as a horror drama because, like you say, it's playing on that almost like experiential element, not ju- and also plus you just it, everyone's. There's a universal thing of things that will bump in the night. That's not. Yep. That's not that fanciful, is it? No. <laughs> I mean, I remember. I remember one time hearing somebody say, "If you want to prove, if you, if you, if people who are like, oh, it wasn't very scary," it's like, well, all right. When you finish watching it, switch all your lights off and walk around your house in the dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's quite often. You know, it's easy to protect yourself because that often what you can't see, what you can't really touch, is really. I mean, I'm I'm terrible for uh, for the things that go bump in the night and the scary things. You know. Give me, give me a Jason or a Michael Myers any day of the week. You know what I mean? It's like they're just silly, silly monsters that you know. I can, I can differentiate the fact. But ghosts is always like you know. The minute you go, the minute you finish watching something that's supernatural, got a supernatural element to it, you're like, yeah, that. If if this really is real, then I'm, then I can be easily scared. Uh, and maybe yeah, uh, and and I. But as a horror fan too, as a fan of being scared you look for things that could actually put you in that mindset. And sometimes it goes a little bit over the line where you're like, oh, fuck, I, I, I fucked myself up this time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But that's part of the fun is, is the idea that, like, uh, I didn't sleep well for a couple nights. God damn it. <laughs> well, no, my, my, the most extreme example of that was as, a, as before I knew it was fake was seeing uh, one of the human guinea pig stuff on, like, oh, a, boot, Jesus. on a bootleg on a bootleg yeah. uh, VHS from like, like in Britain, we have, we have very sort of draconian laws um, mm-hmm. in, in in nearly certainly in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, the video nasty cycle. Filling, filling the video. Well, well, you see, we had we have two phases. We have the original kind of VHS boom, and then we had the Charles Play Three, um, Jamie Bulger case, sort of reuniting of the idea of wanting to censor horror films. So. In the early nineties, it looked like something like Reservoir Dogs was never going to get a home release, for example. Huh. So to get that on VHS, you had to go to, you know, basically where you might get porn from, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and um, a friend of mine got one of the one of the one of the Human Guinea Pig series, uh, one of the Guinea Pig series, so Human Guinea Pig, um, and. And, and we just turned off to 10 minutes. I said, and he was like, and he actually, I remember at the time he said, right, I can get rid of it now. And you've seen some of it because he wanted me to see it first. And it was a few mm-hmm. years later, I got to read um, the head press book, Killing the Culture, which is a sort of look into whether snuff and Mondo movies really exist. Mm-hmm. And in it, it has the court case where they basically show the actress who's in a few of the guinea pig series films. And it's like, well, she can't be killed every, every single one of them, can she? <laughs> And it's like, because they just basically notice it's the same actor being killed. And you're like, wow. But it was so real. And I've never felt that because, you know, you've, you've watched horror films with, with lots of buckets of blood and gore. And you're going, wow, that's real. Look at the flesh tear, you know, Day of the yeah. Dead or, or some Sam Raimi thing or whatever, you know, and that kind of stuff. And you're like, and then to be confronted with something that just felt like someone had put a camera in a room. And it's a woman getting the shit beaten out of her by men dressed in black. I was like, what the f*** is this? I mean, yeah, sometimes sometimes it's difficult to watch when it feels so real that it very much could be. And there was no uh, internet, so you couldn't get the answer. You know what I mean? It was like mm-hmm. in this day and age, you know, I mean, I've, I've not. I've well, gone. and now now you know, there's that movie going around the festival circuit right now called Antrim, the deadliest film ever made, or something like that. Oh, really? Where their where their entire marketing angle is like watching this film will kill you, and it's ah! been it's been rediscovered and all that sort of thing. And they're they've been handling the marketing pretty well because there's not a lot of debunking out there. But it is still one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I'm not taking away from the film or the marketing or anything like that. I'm not. I haven't seen it yet and mm. things like that because I'm alive, I guess. If I want to play into the marketing, but uh, <laughs> but the the idea is is that doing that now, it's like you know how many fucking think pieces go up. It's like this can't be this because of this. Back when you didn't have the internet or you didn't have 
I, I think the nerd film culture, the geek film culture wasn't so entrenched in our society. It was, it, you know, it was all word of mouth. It was all, you yeah, know, yeah, you, just your pool of friends, you were the, like, you were the weird one hiring this out and there might've been like, um, you know, three other people you knew that would have, or one other person you knew that might have the passing interest in it. Uh, it was much more, much easier to fuck with your own head because no, <laughs> you couldn't go research it. No, no, no. That was the second. I remember the Necromantic 2 was another one where I was like, oh my God. Oh I, yeah. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, it's like, mm. and, and when film can affect on that level where you're kind of like, and obviously it's, it's, it's its own transgressive work of art in, in its own gruesome way, gross way and whatever. But at the time I had, I just came to it as like a shock watcher. And, mm-hmm. um, and obviously I got shocked more by the fact that somebody did something artful and therefore that posed more of a danger to my little head than, than, than any kind of gore fest. But anyway, uh-huh. let me, uh, let me move on to your fifth choice because, uh, people have not come to listen to me talk about. Dubious pieces of VHS are picked up in my youth. Um, I'd imagine they actually are here to talk. To listen to you talk as <laughs> your podcast. That's very kind of you. Um, so uh, your fifth choice. We're going to jump into the 21st century and we're going to talk about 2009's Triangle, written and directed by Chris Smith and starring Melissa George. Do you want to talk about what it is about this one? Sure. Uh, first things first. I would say if you haven't seen Triangle, uh, I'm going to spoil a bunch of shit. And so I'm going to count down from five real quick and you can just skip this one, watch triangle and come back because, uh, it's a type of film you should just go in cold and not know anything about five, four, three, two, one. Okay. So I first saw triangle. I I was already a Christopher Smith fan at the time. I really like severance. I really like creep, uh, quite a bit severance in particular. I didn't know what to think going into it. And I saw it in an ideal condition of not being spoiled because I watched it at a market screening at the American film market before anybody had bought it. Uh, And I was like one of five people in the theater. So I sat here expecting, yeah, this will be a fun Christopher Smith movie. And it is, it's, it's, it's fun. It's fast paced. Um, It, it, it just works as a thriller as a, and to me as a horror film, even though people might debate that it's not a horror film and it's more of like a sci-fi thriller kind of thing, but because it deals with time loops and things like that. But it's not a science fiction time loop. It's an existential time loop. It's a a Sisyphusian time loop. It's the idea that this character is caught in essentially a personal hell that they have to keep reliving again and again and again and again uh, to the point where doubles of them keep popping up and they're trying and and doubles of the victims that they have keep popping up. And the moment I knew it was really special, there's a part where – the lead character, Melissa George ends up walking up on the, the, it's on this big ship for most of the movie. Uh, and there's a killer stalking a group of people. And then Melissa George gradually starts to understand. And again, we're in the spoilers here, starts to understand the killer is actually her, another version of her from a, from a different timeline in this time loop. And it's almost like following one version of that character on a path through the time loop to realize realize how she got to the point where she's now killing her friends. Anyway, there's a part, where she walks up on the upper deck and all you can hear is birds and there's like a shit ton of seagulls and they're eating things. And she walks up on the deck and it's like 30 or 40 bodies of one victim. She's killed repeatedly in the same spot. Um, and there's all these hints at, throughout the film of, of how long this loop has been going on. Her locket falls through a metal grate and she looks through the metal grate and there's like 15 lockets down there. Identical. Can, can, um, from a filmmaker point of view, can you talk, cause, yeah. I, cause that, that, that reveal where you get that, that idea of the pre-lap of almost like a pre-lap of the seagulls, yep. even though it's not a pre-lap, it's sort of working like one. Um, mm-hmm. and then what, then we, she sees, then we see it's done really, it's directed really well, isn't it? As a, Yes, it is. Because up until that point, we're like, what the fuck is going on? And that's Mm -hmm. our first big clue, isn't it? It is. Christopher Smith's really good at playing the long game, even with an idea where you could easily give away the farm too early. So in a movie where you're relying on the idea that uh, the audience doesn't really know what's going on. And it's like, I, I was, I rewatched it recently in the last couple of weeks with, uh, with someone close to me and they were like, that's a continuity error. But how could she have gone and told them that to go to the, what go to the dining room when yeah. she's over here? Like, did, was that scene missing? And I'm sitting there thinking, just wait. And then you realize <laughs> that it was another version of her in a different, from a different loop that did it. And it's part of her, plan to get them all in one place so she can kill them because she believes that they're dead the loop will restart and, and the whole thing is she's trying to get 
to stop an accident that kills her son. She makes sort of like a deal with the devil kind of thing um, to try. And, and obviously, because it's a deal with the devil or a deal with whatever this otherworldly entity is, you know, she could it's the cab driver, essentially. At the end, there's a cab driver. Uh, who says you could you you know you don't have to go you could stay and she's like I want to go and when she says I want to go she's making the decision to do the loop all over again in the hopes that at the the very tail end of it she, or the beginning of it she's able to save her son but of course that's pretty much written in stone so she's in in a an existential hell she's I, she, you know what though I like to think of it as being as we're just seeing into her mind's eye you know the, oh, well, that's entirely possible too you know the whole car yeah. crash is just literally the mind's eye death dream. So her death dream is like ever decreasing circles of kind of, you can't change this because you're dying. So therefore yeah. your mind, what we're seeing is her mind replay. Well, the, the, again, the, the loop itself may not be a physical loop. It may be in her mind. It mm. may be the idea of as she's dying, it, it, it's the, de- it's the decisions she makes that helps her get to the afterlife or mm. what, whatever version of the no, afterlife totally, no, is. And I, and I, what I'm, ta- I'm adding that for is because I think that's what's so bloody clever about it is that yeah. it can be seen on many levels, can't it? What's happening? Absolutely. And, uh, and again, I, I chose this one because of how it impacted me the first time I saw it. I think it holds up incredibly well. I, and, but I say, even with all five of the ones I've chosen, I, my list was like, it was like, my list was like 25 or 30 films. Mm. So I, I do think this is a really great horror films, thriller film, whatever you say. I, I think it's in, incredibly well uh, executed. I think Melissa George is awesome in it. Um, just see it is all I would have to say. Mm. Uh, it, it, because it didn't really get the fanfare I think it deserved when it came out. But it also no, no, might have totally been... No, totally no. Because I think if you look at something like, um, I don't know, like Coherence, which I, yeah. which I really loved, which, which mm-hmm. only really sort of goes chaotic and that idea of replicate, replicate, I mean, I'm spoiling, I'm spoiling coherence here a bit, but, yeah. um, but the way that, if we're already in a spoiler territory on Triangle, so yeah. people bear with me. Um, that idea of the craziness of the, of, the, um, of the splitting infinity of time, you know, like realities are happening, all realities are happening simultaneously, therefore the past, present and future exist together, um, is, is just a chaotic end, whereas Triangle... It's very mm. much a slow drip of of this of revealing it. So in a way, it's much more orchestrated. Whereas I feel like uh, I'm not. This isn't any great coherence. But I think it's a great movie, but it's just more yeah. to sort of shine light on the cleverness behind something. As well, something coherence like plays it like a twist, whereas yeah. I feel Triangle plays it like the entire structure of the story. Yes, yeah, sorry. That's, and that, and on a second watch, <laughs> on a second watch, you, yeah, exactly. On a second watch, you can you can appreciate more all the machinations Christopher Smith put into it, where even in the first five minutes of the film, if you know what's going on, you're picking up on things that you missed. And I really, I really appreciate that approach. Um, but again, I think this might be a film that I don't want to say it went over anyone's head because it's presented cleanly enough that you understand what's going on. But it doesn't give you any answer as to exactly and why it's going on. If you don't pay attention to all of it, you yeah. will you will be left wondering why you don't maybe get a solid answer. Even though by watching it all, there are there are there are tangible logical reasons as to why what what's going on is going on. And and to yeah. it, I mean, I've been lucky enough. I had I've had uh, James Moran on talking about mm. right, the writing of Severance. And if I yes. ever get the chance, I want I would love to get Chris Smith on. To talk about Triangle because because well, he's got I'm, that movie The Banishing coming up. You might be able to get him on to help promote that or something like that. Indeed, indeed. But I just just jam, just I probably want to talk about that. But like another time, yeah. I'd like I'd love to do because tri- because he wrote and directed it. It's that idea mm. of being you know in charge of all of it um, and and the, yes, like, I mean, it being such a again, it's that thing about what what could be very in the wrong hands, overly complicated and mm-hmm. nonsensical. But actually, the provenance of it is set up, like you say, the examples you show and like your friend watching it with somebody who's not seen it most recently and then them questioning mm-hmm. even at the point and you're like, just you wait, it'll all begin to fall into place. Yeah, but it's also structured like a thrill ride. Like it, it, it's very much, even if you miss things, it's fast paced enough and um, it, it plays out like a very good slasher film through mm. a lot of it. So you're, you're, not, you're not always having to overthink, it's, but you can. And, and and I think that's probably why it's so successful in my mind is, is that it's it's fun at its base level it's a fun film. Yes. So right. um we're done. Yeah, uh, I was going to say so let's ask. Go on. Though 
can I list the others on my list really quickly? Just because yeah, I believe yeah, these yeah. films are yeah, are yeah, just yeah. as no, worthy. No. Give us a shot. Just as worthy. And okay, so Dog Soldiers, The Descent, Shaun of the Dead, Kill Less, Severance, Wilderness, The Children, American Werewolf in London, The Last Horror Movie, Living Death at Manchester Morgue, uh, Evil Evil Aliens, Mum and Dad, The Innocents, The Wicker Man, Straw Dogs, Attack the Block, Paper House, My Little Line, Extra. Those are the ones that didn't make it, but are just as good as anything I just said. Indeed. Maybe some of them aren't quite as good, but they're they're still highly worthy. They're good in their own right. Well, look, thanks yeah. very much for uh, coming on. I'm just going to do a quick recap on what your five were. Now you just you've given us your kind of uh, close but not quite. Um, yeah. So we got 1960s Peeping Tom. We got 1984's The Company of Wolves. We got 1987's <laughs> Hellraiser. We got 1992's Ghostwatch, and we've got 2009's Triangle. Now, thinking about thinking about you as a as a Canadian film watcher, mm-hmm. what what for you do you think these films and, the, and and by definition the extended list you gave? What do you see as being a kind of almost like a an architect? What, what do you see as being a quality that you can see as a common thing in a British horror film, or is there, is there not one, or is it all about the author um, himself? I mean, they're they're all very diverse films, and it is. I, I do believe that almost everything I've listed are very uh, singular visions of people. They're mm-hmm. they're 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 um, they're films on their own terms without too much outside interference. And one thing I would say is archetypal of British cinema in general. Even though you have government money in it, even though you have uh, you know there's state funding and all that sort of thing, I don't look at it and British cinema and go, okay, there's the hand of all the financers. I generally, genuinely believe that the majority of the British film I've seen feels like this is the idea. This is the story we wanted to tell. And we're telling it in the best way we possibly can. I mean, there's definitely not, there's definitely bad British film out there, Of course, but of the stuff that stands out to me, the stuff that is usually quite, uh, you can see the hand of the creator in it. And that hand doesn't seem to have been, um, manipulated by outside sources uh i i think part of the reason i I enjoy british cinema and british television and um you know because i i love british tv uh in a lot of ways um going way back uh is the idea that it doesn't seem to matter that the idea isn't overly commercial it still finds its voice and its viewership um despite something being like fucking weird like i think of a, a series like ideal the Johnny mm. Vegas thing. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I'm sure that film, that show has its detractors, but there's no way that show gets made in the States. <laughs> like it, it's, it's such a singular, like with cartoon head and fucking psycho Paul and all that shit. There's no way that those characters, maybe now it might, but back when that first was first launched, there's there like, it wouldn't make it past a pilot and the pilot would be awful. But in the in the with the British sensibility and the the idea that it's 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 like one writer, it's not like is that because, is that is that is that a thing about how I mean because ideal is essentially kind of morally repugnant, isn't it? If you kind oh, of, it's, it's awful. <laughs> if you take it, if you take it apart, <laughs> like, I mean, no, it's a good, it's a great show, but like it's it's yeah, I mean that in a positive yeah, yeah, way. Yeah, you guys it? go to dark places that uh, other people don't dare. I think, and um, but and, and make it funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's hard. To, it's hard for me to pinpoint because everything's so individualistic. No, but I think, um, but I think that's. You, I mean, it's yeah. weird for you to pick that as an example. But yes, yeah. I can see. I mean, I'm from Manchester, which is where that's set as well. So mm-hmm. for me, that that doesn't just resonate as a kind of very English British thing. But also, it's it's the idea that someone can make a show so all also regionally specific as well. You know, you live in Canada, yeah. a friggin' huge country. I live in Britain, which is tiny, wincy, teeny weeny, and yet, mm-hmm. yet. If you made that same show and set it in London, it'd be a very different program. It would have a different feel entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting for you to pick on something that's also got such a regional bias to it, as well as as well as a national one. Um, Mm -hmm. So yes. But again, I I could say the same thing about like Korean cinema or something. How how there there's a a, there an identity to those films uh, uh, that is different than anything that comes out of the U.S. or anything that comes out of Canada, even Canadian cinema, right? There's something odd about a lot of the movies we make. Uh, and it's, I think it's just the perspective on life and, and the the road to getting a film made in these different countries, these different regions, is different enough that um, people, particularly in Britain, particularly in Korea, particularly – uh, in in these sort of like state funded, but um, well, Korea a lot of their films are supported by like 
companies owned by grocery stores chains and shit. But the point being is that um, it, it doesn't look, feel like there's a hand of somebody watching the pocketbook in a lot of the stuff but, but that all, gets but made. But also, Justin, I think the other thing there is that, and, and this is a similarity that, that Canada and UK both share, is mm-hmm. is that we obviously speak English just like America does. And, <laughs> yes. And because of that, we get such a volume of American product, whether that be TV or film, that mm-hmm. just to make a facsimile of what America's already doing... What's is the o- point? Is, what is, ...is almost like, yeah, what's the point? I mean, obviously, you've got the other, the, the, the kind of French-Canadian thing, which is obviously its own unique thing anyway, but, but the English-speaking mm-hmm. part of Canada, they, people must go, well, well, they've already got that, so let's do something so, so specific, culturally specific that it at least yeah. has its identity, because... If you make a French program, no matter how much it copies, say, the structure of the wire, they're speaking French or German mm-hmm. or, or or Belgian, you know, whereas we make it and, it and if it follows the structure of the wire, people go, oh, that's just the British version of the wire. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not in a yeah. foreign language. Although it often goes the other way. Oh, that's an American version of X, you know, like True. whatever. <laughs> um, I remember when they tried to uh, do the American version of the IT crowd. Do you ever see that pilot? No, I didn't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about missing the point entirely. <laughs> well, now like, you've mentioned it, I'd love yeah. to see the American attempt at ideal, to be honest with you. <laughs> Was there an American attempt at ideal? Oh, no, no, no I'd, 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 say I'd, say I'd, love to, I'd say I'd love to see it, you know, in terms of... Uh, because shameless yeah. happened when that was that was kind of odd to see that. Yeah, it, it was on, to, and it, but it was a hit. Like yeah, the American yeah, yeah, Shameless yeah. is a massive hit. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I honestly, I do feel it's something to do with individuality, though. It's something to do with like people, whatever the upbringing was, whatever you know. A lot of your writers coming up through the Blitz and stuff like that, and the like this, you know, after World War II, the writers in the '60s and '70s and stuff like that. There's a lot of anger there. Mm. There's a lot of. Um, uh, again, the 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 art that's created out of the strife of the society at the time usually reflects the anger or the uh, the pressures of the society at the time. So no, no, I think, uh, I think anti-establishment is a very, very big trait and value that we put on entertainment. I think yes, if, you, you, if you're not, it's almost like knocking society is part mm-hmm. of our. It's part of our freedom, if that makes sense. It's like we, yeah. we, know, we know it's crap, but you know, we like mm-hmm. this is why we think it's funny as well. Oh, it's it's freedom through entertainment, right? Yeah. It's um, but you know, you could also get into the Vonnegut player piano side of that too, and going like, as long as the audience is entertained and they've got the nice TV in their house and the proper appliances, then the government's free to do whatever the fuck they want. Um, we, we've like, got we got we got Ballard to tell us that. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, sir, I'm going to wrap up now. Uh, just very quickly before I do, remind us what it is. What, what have you got on the horizon then? So, Life Changers out there, you can go see it now. Obviously, uh, Clapboard Jungle surviving the independent independent film business should be out later this year. But we've shot like 400 hours of raw footage, so the edit is taking quite a while. That's both going to be a feature film and a eight episode educational series. Jesus. Uh, yeah, it's just there's too much footage for one film. Um, and anyway, uh, and then we've got two more films that we're supposed to be going to camera on relatively soon. Do you see what I see in Mark of Cain? Uh, and yeah, there's a lot. I think we're going to do a fourth Little Terrors anthology release. Um, the first two of them got released through Studio Canal. They're uh, Linus Past Midnight and Galaxy of Horrors. Mm. There is a third one that hasn't been released in the UK, but has been done for a year called Blood, Sweat and Tears, which you can find uh, from other countries. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, we're always making, I'm always making stuff. We're always working. So is out of um, interest, is life changer going to be on UK net, UK and Ireland Netflix? I don't know that yet because that's up to signature and Fright Fest presents. Got you. Got so you. Oh, God, if, it's Fright, if it's Fright Fest presents, then yeah, I guess it will be. Yeah. I just don't know when. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yep. Well, look, thank you very much for, um, for coming on the podcast and, and having a, a much wi- a much more wider ranging conversation than just five great British horror films because I, I did really enjoy that uh, the little little mm-hmm. because it's not often I mean it sounds daft but it's not often I get people coming on who aren't British talking about British horror films so to have that wider chat about uh, and I want to do more of this because I, I I find it I do find it's that I, I get you know it's that thing about goo cigarettes are much more exciting than Benson Edges you know or like when I was a kid <laughs> when I was a kid smoking you know Marlboro was somehow exciting you know they all still give you cancer but you know because it was foreign it had some edge to it but uh, yeah thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for giving us your time.
No problem. Thank you, Stuart. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.